If I'm ever hand again, the first thing I'll do is hang all the singers. George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire is, perhaps unsurprisingly, full of songs which play a multi-layered role in the series, and whose importance is reflected throughout the immediate story and, in addition, Martin's background world-building. The oral tradition is older than the written word in all human societies, facilitating the transition of culture and knowledge from one generation to the next. Songs occupy an important function in this tradition, as they play the dual role of providing immediate entertainment and a mechanism for the preservation of the history of a people and their customs, values, and beliefs. The structure of songs make them easier to learn and memorize, and less likely to degrade over time. Even in a literate society, songs retain power, being both a reflection of their time as well as transcending the era in which they were first composed. Power of the oral tradition broadly and of song in particular is most exemplified in the free folk culture beyond the wall. Their society is one of the closest to a pre-literate culture, so it is not surprising that they fully embrace song and music. Their latest king beyond the wall is a singer, while their mythological symbol of power is the horn of Joramon, whose sounding could supposedly awaken giants or even bring down the wall. Those were the first few lines of Songs and Singers of Ice and Fire by Amen Javadi of A Podcast of Ice and Fire from the book A Hymn for Spring. Enjoy this bonus episode outside of our normal release schedule. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros. Today's episode is about A Hymn for Spring, and we have a special guest, Amin, from A Podcast of Ice and Fire, who also has an essay in the book. Hi guys, it's great to be here. Right on, yeah. We I've we've been on your show, both of us. I've been on it several times. Ashea, you've been on once, I once, think. I think. Yeah. So it's about time we had you on our <laughs> show, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sipping from the Zarbra Gold you you afford me is very receptive here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Lies and Arbor Gold. That's what we have for you all today. <laughs> no, but about a, a more than a year ago, this book was published through Tower of the Hand, as Ashea said. It's called A Hymn for Spring. And we contributed an essay to it. I mean, you contributed an essay to it. A lot of other people that are pretty well known in the fandom have contributed an essay to it. And why don't you tell us a bit about how this thing all came together in the first place? Because sure. this has been running for a while and we were brought in, you know, this you guys have done books in the past and we weren't part of those prior ones. So you, uh, you've been part of this longer than we have. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, we got contacted by Tower of the Hand. They were putting together a project which became A Flight of Sorrows, which was the first essay ebook. And I took part in it, in it. So did Mimi from our podcast. And that was a big hit. And so we wanted to do, we wanted to take what we learned from that and do an even bigger ebook, get more people involved. So we started looking for other people in the fandom that we hadn't talked to the first time. I had been in contact with you both. I know you do good work, work over here. You're interested in analyzing the series, and I thought you might be interested in taking part. So I kind of put you in contact with the editor, Mark, and you guys were pretty interested and had this parent hall idea, I think, already maybe in the back of your head. So you wanted to, to write about it, right? Definitely. Yeah. The Heron Hall concept is fun. There's a lot of neat things that we found to write about, you know, like a lot of subjects, you have an idea of what you want to write about. And then when you start researching and getting deep into it, you find all kinds of new things. That's just the nature of A Song of Ice and Fire. George always puts so many little details in there, so many sneaky things that, you, it's hard to catch them all unless you're really, really looking. You know, our regular listeners and yours as well probably are super familiar with that concept of how the deeper you look, the more you find. It's it's never disappointing. And it's no different here. So the difference here is that for us, we got to see a lot of different takes on 
how A Song of Ice and Fire appeals to people and different things that people have keyed in on that are interesting. The idea of songs and singers, which is what your essay is on, is a great topic. Songs and singers of Ice and Fire, it's a really good topic. It's right up our alley. It's it's something that, you know, we could have maybe done if we had had the idea first. It's because it ties so much into history. But you did a fantastic job with it. And you've certainly a good another good example of what we were just talking about. You picked out a lot of things that we had never thought about, even though we've been dealing with history topics so much. And the way it ties into not just the history, but the current situation, the current characters and how much it's a big part of their lives. I mean, if we were just to list every song that George has made a name of or even written lyrics, it would take a while. There's so many. I mean, there's dozens upon dozens. It's great. I think one of my favorite things he said was uh, about songwriting is that he's had always wanted to be a songwriter when he was younger. And this is a way that he's been able to. And he, you know, has even been nominated for awards because of uh, the Reigns of Castamere and stuff like that. That's true. And That's he's, act- really he's actually in some songwriting academy. He said that at a con we went to earlier this year. That's really neat. The the advantage of this project is you get to choose a topic and narrow down and really do that research, which you might not do even even for an, an episode. I'm sure you guys put a lot of preparation into your episodes, but it's still not going to be the same as writing an essay and spending the weeks and months in, in doing the research and, and putting it together. Right. And for us, this is a di- this this episode, you know, we're calling it sort of a bonus episode because it's a little different than our normal style. In fact, uh, we haven't even mentioned we're a few minutes into this now. We haven't even mentioned that this is the first episode we've done in years that has no video accompanying it. So that's kind of fun for us. We, um, you know, are in our pajamas. We don't have to we don't have to get, <laughs> get dressed up <laughs> like we normally do. The reason for that is simply, you know, you're, you're not a camera guy. So we just made this simple. Uh, that's nice for us. Um, and some of the people who usually watch us on video might have to check out the podcast side of things if they want to catch this. And real quick, I want to drop a couple of thanks, not just to Amin for joining us today, but for some of the other authors who contributed to this book of essays, such as Stephen Atwell, who wrote Machiavellianism for a Purpose. Uh, he also wrote Who Stole Westeros? Two essays from Stephen Atwell. Of course, y'all are very familiar with Stephen, mm-hmm. if not from his own Race for the Iron Throne blog, but from having him as a guest on our show. Another yeah. guest that we've had is Jim McGeehan, who wrote How to Win Thrones and Rule People. Which is a great title. <laughs> <laughs> and another person we've had as a guest, Iron Benz by Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. As well as Stefan Sassa, who wrote The Patriarchs of Westeros and The Word is Grolio. And Stefan has been a guest on our show as well. Wait a minute. Stefan did three essays, Making History, The Battle of the Redgrass Field, which is funny that that's the one I forgot to mention because I was the editor for that one. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then we also have by John Jasmine, Unconditional Victory, and by Alexander Smith, A Game of Adaptation. And John and Alex are... The founders, two of the founders of Tower of the Hand, if I'm uh, not uh, mistaken. That's correct, yeah. It, I mean, it, it basically is an all-star list in terms of people involved in the fandom. And that's fun, being able to get together and put it all together in one ebook, right? Definitely. That was really fun. And Mark Kleinheinz was the overall editor of the project, the project lead, so to speak. He's the uh, man who was, you know, he's an editor in, in real life. <laughs> Uh, so good to have him. And of course, we want to thank Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, as well as Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, and writer of Mazalacartho, the green dragon with white scales, horns. I'm sorry, the white dragon with green scales, horns, and wings. 
got that backwards. It'd be interesting to have an inverted dragon. They'd uh, be like a nice pair there. So let's get into <laughs> your essay. Uh, we're going to start with your essay, and we've got, uh, we'll transition into our essay about Heron Hall. There's, there's some interesting things that the two have in common. On the surface, people might not guess that songs and singers and Heron Hall, the curse of Heron Hall, specifically have a lot in common. But we'll show you. We'll get into that. Now, I think one of the most important things about songs, not just about that we love to talk about the history of songs, but not just the preservation of knowledge, but the foreshadowing. I think that's a really th a thing that people miss is they're not just a piece of history. They're not just a piece of the present. They're, there's foreshadowing. What were some of your uh, favorite examples of foreshadowing that you wrote about? Songs are kind of repeating kind of the values of the society in one sense, like we find from the songs about, uh, and there's also the tale as well. Often the songs will mirror the tale. They'll both exist. There'll be a story and there'll be the song equivalent of it. Of the Rat King, for example, where we learn like breaking the guest right is pretty much the ultimate sin. It's even worse. I mean, his punishment was to, to be a cannibal and to eat his own children, but that wasn't as bad as breaking the guest right. Yeah. Right. And so that kind of gives us the idea, like how people will view events like the Red Wedding and what that will lead, because it's just such a breach of Westeros etiquette to do that. You wonder how that affects will affect a song like The Reigns of Castamere, which Tywin used, You something you point out, that Tywin totally encouraged the singing of that song and the spread of that song because it increased his reputation. And it's cool how much history is in that song, too. This is how that song is the history of the Reigns and the Tarbot. Well, the end of their history, anyway. And you wouldn't think Tywin would, would be the type that would kind of like like music or promote it, but he knows the political value of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a he's a bottom yeah. line guy, and he sees how that it, it helps him out. And you wonder how that song will, you know, in the future of Westeros, will the song take on a different meaning now that it's attributed to the Red Wedding? I mean, I personally, when I think the Reigns of Castamere now, that is what I think of. I think of the Red Wedding, even though that has, you know, it's it's not originally doesn't have anything to do with the Red Wedding. It's just you know, now it's inextricably mm. tied because of how it was presented to us in the story. Yeah. I think of the rain's destruction because we learned it so much later that, uh, you know, we only learned about how it happened just in the past two years. Uh, yeah, that's right. The World of Ice and Fire gave us that mm. full story. That's true. So it was especially notable to me. Yeah, that's really neat. Okay. And the other thing that comes to mind is, uh, as we kind of touched upon, is the Bale, the Bard story about... Uh, what he did there, which ties kind of the Blue Rose idea to the Starks, shows that connection, which is relevant to Lyanna. It shows Bran Stark hiding in the crypts. Like, it's, it's possible to hide in the crypts for a year or more at a time if you want to not be found. And it, it also conveys, I mean, like, that song about Bale the Bard, Ygritte is able to talk about Winterfell's glass gardens and the crypts, and, and even though she's never even seen the tower yet at that point, she's able to communicate something even without understanding it, that that knowledge has passed through her. Yeah, it's really neat. The, uh, the there's a lot. You're right. That's it's not just about the story of Bran and foreshadowing that Bran and and, can, and Rickon and crew can hide in the crypts. But it like you said, it talks about John and Lyanna, and there's the Blue Rose imagery, and that ties into Rhaegar. And Rhaegar, of course, is a big part of your essay as well because he's one of the most prominent characters, even though he's, you know, dead by the time the story starts, that music is a big part of his hmm. character in general. And it's a big part of how Liana noticed him in the first place. You know, we, we remember there's that quote where we hear 
that Liana was brought to tears by his singing and then his one of his brothers i guess it was brandon most likely was teasing her about it and she you know punched him or something yeah he was he was like the rock star of his era in a way i mean it wasn't his fighting that caught her eye right it was his music abilities that, that pulled her in <laughs> which is funny because it seems like there's a good chance that her fighting and her you know attitude and and character was what drew her to him mm. the guy attracted to the toughness of the girl and the girl attracted to the musicianship of the guy well maybe even just the you mean like being, being a singer, being open to these songs might have kept his mind more open than the average person. Yeah, that's I mean, a He also point. read wildly too, but to appreciate a girl like that. Yeah, Rhaegar is painted as a character, as a person that there's a lot of things that you can't help but like about him. Certainly there's things you can dislike about him, maybe some of his decisions that he's made. But the music as part of his character is, is an inextricable part of him. And it's such a differentiator. You just can't, there's just very few other characters in the entire story who are important that have, you know, a musical background because it's not like, just like Tyrion and being, learning tumbling was something that his father really frowned on because it was something that lordly people don't do. It's generally not something that the highborn have as a, you know, as a diversion, it's it's kind of beneath them, you know, so in their, yep. the way they think about it, you know, which we think is kind of silly, but there's not many highborn that go into it. You're exactly right. So that that was a bit of a rarity there. But they do kind of I mean, you see singers all the time at court and, and around places. They get the ear and the eye of the of the nobles. They just don't usually come from them. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of um parallels between the other major character who has music as a big part of his who he is and that's Rhaegar I'm sorry it's Rhaegar not Rhaegar Mance Raider <laughs> and similarly just like there's a lot of love tied up an important love story tied into Rhaegar and his music with Mance it was a big part of and this is something you talk about in your essay very clearly how he was drawn to wildling music his love specifically his love of wildling music was a big part of what drove him away from the night's watch and that makes me think of Eamon telling john that you can't have love and duty because they're not compatible and mm. that is to me it's like mance chose love over duty he and it was more <laughs> except that he didn't choose a woman <laughs> like Rhaegar did it was music and freedom and these things that the music represents, which is, I think that's that's really great that it's tied into his story that way. Yeah, the Night's Watch is so restrictive that wouldn't fit what he was looking for. I mean, the song that we have about the Night's Watch, Brave Danny Flint, kind of shows that like you have it, it's supposed to be, it kind of starts heroic. There's this girl who disguises herself as a boy and goes to the Night's Watch and is going to maybe become a hero, but ultimately she's discovered she's raped, she's murdered there, and it shows how dangerous it can be at the wall, what the condition of the wall is going with the quality of recruits going downhill. And it's kind of a warning to against people trying to bend gender norms in Westeros. Yeah. And in another neat parallel I noticed is, it's kind of a sub-parallel, I suppose, is that the, the what we were just talking about with regards to how music is not the the kind of thing that the noble generally get involved with directly it's something they you know they they hire musicians and that is immediately apparent when john meets mance for the first time and he assumes that the singer is not mance raider he assumes it's tormund because he looks like a warrior and surely it's not the guy playing the the harp or, or the lute or whatever it is he's playing <laughs> now let's talk a bit about how history and music comes together 
You talk a lot about the difference between oral tradition and writing and how oral tradition, of course, in every society that's ever existed pre, you know, in the ancient days of, of Earth had oral tradition slash music before they had writing. And that's, you know, maybe it's an obvious thing to say, but it's not an obvious thing to maybe realize if you haven't taken the time to think about it. Was that one of the things that you were really keying into early on when you were coming up with this topic and writing about it? Yes, definitely. I mean, starting with the free folk who basically don't even have much of a written society, it's still the most dominant there. But even in Westeros, where there is writing, it's still a small minority of people that write. I mean, there's the nobles who learn to read it There's by, by their inherent right. There's maesters and merchants that do it because it's practical. But most people still can't read or write. Most people still rely on the songs as their main way of hearing about history and about what happened before they were born. And you also talk about why they last. And this is something that's close to me uh, as someone, I have a degree in music. So of course I, I've thought about these things a lot and it's just that how well they stick with you. I mean, you hear a song and it's, if it's, if the melody is catchy enough, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole um, thinking behind making advertising jingles. They're specifically trying to create an earworm, something that sticks with you, something that you can't forget. Not that you want to, or it has nothing to do with whether you want to forget it or whether, you, you know, what your attitude doesn't matter. It's so compelling, so addictive that you can't help but remember it. It's just like none of us are ever going to forget how the Game of Thrones theme song sounds if you've watched the TV show at all. <laughs> Maybe if you've only heard watched it once or twice, you, <laughs> you'll forget it. But if you've watched the show every every season, that song's with you forever. You're going to die with that song in your head. <laughs> all of us. That's, that's how we're all going to die that song in our head. <laughs> Not literally, no, no. But you played at your funeral, it's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> that's right, everyone's going to have... We'll all have the Reigns of Castamere played at our funeral, if not the uh, Game of Thrones yeah. theme song. That's what you got to play at a wedding, by the way. That would be pretty cool to play the Castamere. And, that, and then you know you're a hardcore fan. Yeah, how many, I wonder how many real-world weddings have had the Reigns of Castamere <laughs> played in them. I'm sure so many. It's got to have been done by now, yeah, by Lots a few people times. at least. A lot of times. <laughs> I wonder how many times it was done as a surprise. Like, <laughs> neither the bride or groom, like, one of them wasn't in on it. And they're just like, whoa, what the, <laughs> you know, what the hell's going on? Should I be worried? Am I wearing, should I have worn my chain mail? <laughs> well, we did actually, that was done one time at one of the Ice and Fire uh, Con conventions. Uh, oh. years ago where they just started playing it in the middle of dance party and then people came in with like foam crossbows and started shooting people <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> uh, speaking of ice and fire con good uh, chance for a <clears throat> quick segue there we're all going to meet each other i mean and us we have not met in person yet but we will be meeting at ice and fire con and we hope to see you all there as well it's going to be a lot of fun there'll be a lot of i mean just picture yourself in a relatively small area, you know, outside of a outside of town. This is a you know, <laughs> not a not a big city that this takes place in. So it's a nice, out of the way, but not not hard to get to location where it's just fans of A Song of Ice and Fire and nobody else. That's some people's idea of heaven. It's pretty close to, uh, or hell or hell. Some people <laughs> would call that hell, but for us in the fandom, it's a great thing. So. Yeah, so I hope you all can join us there. There's links to yeah. buy your ticket if you're interested on our website. We'll be bringing our nine-player board game map. That's right. Playing Speaking some of, that. of, yeah, the board game that some of you have seen on our wall behind us in our videos, that's going to come down off the wall, and we're going to bring it with us. And, I mean, that's part of how we know each other as well, playing the board game together. 
Yeah, we've been playing online. Uh, we had not as much recently, but we had some good games in the past for sure. Definitely, definitely. games. And the, he's I mean, a very tough opponent. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, I played. With, I think we both played it since pretty much when it came out, right? So yes. We've, uh, and, and, and you know what's interesting about it? I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but that board game promotes betrayal. That's kind of the idea. Like it's supposed <laughs> to betray people. But if you play it repeatedly with people, you you kind of learn like that. You should rarely betray people. Like it's your your word has some value. Like if you yeah. just go around and willy nilly and betray people with any effect, then it actually hurt. it's it's not an advantage. It's, it's like, people won't make deals with you in future games. They, yeah. yeah, exactly. So if, if you only play one game, then it's okay. <laughs> betray as much as you want, <laughs> but it's like game theory in action. There, if, <laughs> exactly. you, if you do it, that you got to be like there's a there's a wisdom that comes with making small deals. Obviously, if you make big deals, it kind of breaks the game. If you have like mm -hmm. five turn alliances, but if you can have a deal for a turn early in the game. It's not worth it to do that raid, that little bit of game when ultimately it's better to hold your word. Yeah. It's almost a Stannis <laughs> method of playing yeah. the game. A thing about reputation is a good segue back <clears throat> into our main topics here. And it's important for one of the things that songs can do is enhance a legend or keep alive the memory of an important event. Now, Here's a question I have that's kind of confusing to me, and, and this is one that we won't ever have an answer to, but I think it's interesting to think about. Uh, there's a song called The Night That Ended, and that's a song referring to the long night, and or the end of the long night. And there's, I believe there's a few other songs related to the long night, uh, but the thing is, you wonder, do those songs really go back that far? Do, they, do any of these songs actually date back, say, 8,000 years? It's possible. Certainly is possible. We can't say other we can't say it's not possible, certainly. No. And if so, that's fascinating. Uh, that long for it to last. Um But we have stories that go that that far back, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if the song does. I mean you can also say people do look backwards in history as for inspiration for songs. So it could have been a more recent song, but That's true. I wouldn't be surprised if it went back that far. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, um, as far as as far as that goes, it's interesting too to see which things are immortalized in song, which things are just told about in legend. Certain stories, certainly the juiciest ancient stories, are, are told still. Um, the ones that are, you know, the one the told to children at night. Uh, stories like the Rat Cook is probably the darkest story, but it is also an example of one that's been made into song. And I'm guessing that one would have survived even if it hadn't been made into song because it's such a powerful story. And like you say, it's still part of the culture in a major way because kinslaying is such a big deal. Sorry, guest right. Well, and kinslaying are both such a big deal. Yeah. And the rat cook does deal with both. And in fact, those are probably the two worst social taboos mm -hmm. in all of Westeros. I think you guys would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, but then it, uh, the the guest right is even more. It's like it, compar it shows the comparison between the two. They're all bad. But like his punishment is to do the other vices. So like, so the breaking the gas ride was the ultimate worst thing you could do. Yeah, kin, yeah, kinslaying is probably second. It's up there, but I'd say gas ride, especially in the north. Yeah, but in the south too. I mean, the red wedding was a big deal in the south. The the betrayal, the the shock of doing all that at a wedding uh, with guest right in play was mm -hmm. really, you know, it would be nice to see you know, into the minds of some generic small folk just to see what they would think of that and what they would say and how they would say, oh, Tywin is cursed. You know, Walder Frey is cursed now because of that. Certainly, us readers expect that, right? We expect Lord Walder to have an awful end, right? Don't Isn't that, I mean, it may not happen, but we kind of expect it, right? 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. And hopefully they'll make a song about it too. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, the pies of Manderley. <laughs> the weasel in the night. Instead of yeah. wolf in the night. Or, uh, weasel pie. We got weasels, uh, yeah. On the subject, though, of uh, songs enforcing the legends, I think one is Brave Danny Flint. I don't think that's mm. a story that maybe would have spread as much without a song. That's a good point. It's not a huge historical event. Yeah, it's not a game-changing like event. It didn't, it's not the like a long night. A girl. Yeah. So. It's it's just a tragedy. Uh, one fun thing I had thinking about when we were preparing for this episode, as you all could tell, this is not a scripted episode, which is it's fun for us to, to change things up every once in a while uh, and do discussions. But one thing that so one of the things I was thinking about before this, and I was tossing around how to include this, was what, <laughs> and it's kind of a frivolous idea, but it's, I think, still think it's fun. Is what genre some of these songs would be in if they were mm. modern songs? Like to me, the the Brave Danny Flint would be metal. <laughs> Whereas something yeah, like uh, the this Florian and Jonquil would, would, you know, that would be, you know, I think that would have to be a folk song, you mm -hmm. know, or something like that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. For example, Reigns of Castamere had different interpretations, right? In some, it's like a jovial, happy song. In other ones, it's a somber. Yeah. That's yeah. the way of singing it, so... And for another version of Reigns of Castamere, at the end of this episode, we'll include my rendition of Reigns of Castamere that I recorded for Radio Westeros uh, at least a year ago. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. That was fun to record. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd like <laughs> to see uh, Dornishman's wife as like a, a diss rap. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> slept with your wife, man. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a rap type song. Yeah. And I mean, that. Just that song in general, it, it says such. It shows how these songs tra uh, travel. I mean, Mance has traveled himself, but he's singing it beyond the wall. Yeah. Yeah. He's singing about Dorne beyond the wall, and then songs of my like the my uh, seasons of my love is from Essos, I think. Yeah. Seasons of my love always makes me think of like some '60s type song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shay has a list of songs pulled up here, and it's probably not a complete list, but man, it's big. It's a yeah, large 59. list. Well, I, this kind of goes into, I think, like, were you going to ask me about what I wish I had put in there? We always, that always happens to us. We're like, oh, yeah, we got to put this in. Uh. Well, two two things mainly. One of them is I think there's a song I talked about later that, because these songs do change over time, right? They're not, even though they have catchy lyrics, they still change. And I think I found a song that the city in it changes or there's different versions of oh. it, which is good because that would that makes sense that it would. Yeah. Maybe it's off to Galltown, I think. Okay. Yeah. They, they said it was he changed the lyrics to off to Ashford. Oh. Yeah, Nights, so that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, there's real world examples of that. Like there's songs that go back so far, no one knows who came up with them. You know. Yeah. So he did. Though. That, like, that's a uh, great example. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. what you wanted to include. You didn't include that. I didn't include. I mean, I didn't write about it in, in the story yeah. here. It came up kind of in the discussions that came up afterwards after I released yeah. the essay. Um, the other thing is. Baron and uh, Maiden Fair. Um, I mean, I write about it. I write about it. It is about sex, and maybe that's why it's so popular. Uh, but I didn't quite write about. I mean, it also it's about you know consent issues in Westeros, right? Like Westeros has problems with consent, yeah. mm -hmm. and so does that song, right? It reflects the culture there. I didn't quite bring that out mm. there, and I think that's worth noting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and seeing the list kind of reminds me of. Uh, I mean, there's the religious element of the songs too, right? That helps reinforce the faith. Hymns, yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, we even got a little bit of that in the show. Yeah. An actual version of it. In fact, it's Sam very memorable, I yeah, think. Because the yeah. way they sing it, it's one of those ones that uh, it's got a very recognizable harmony and melody, or not harmony, but melody and 
it's written it's got distinct rhythm to it as well um the meter is really noticeable and that helps it be uh, it kind of sticks in the mind that for those reasons which is a good segue to talking about the tv show in a way that doesn't spoil the tv show because we're not trying to get into tv show plots here but the tv show is really interesting because of its interplay with music and how it's impacted the fandom even the book fandom in terms of the music and I want to illustrate this point by talking about the characters and the actors. Uh, I read the series a long time ago, well before the TV show came out. You did as well. I mean, um, Ashe, you you read it before the TV show came out as well. Yeah, not a long time before. Not a long time before, yeah. but definitely before. So all of us had images in our head of what these characters looked like. You know, I had an image in my head of what Tyrion looked like. I had an image in my head of what Bronn looked like, Tywin, all these characters. When the show came along... You know, a lot of people picture those characters because, you know, a lot of people saw the show and then went to the books. And some people who read the books, the, the TV characters have taken over in their heart. Like when they're reading the book now, I, we have a lot of listeners who tell us that when they're reading, they see Tyrion, a chapter, they're picturing Peter Dinklage. I totally get that. But it's not, it does not happen for me because I've, I have these images in my head for 10 years before seeing them on, on TV. It was too long set in my brain for them to be replaced. But the music is completely different because I didn't have a song version in my head of what Reigns of Casimir sounded like from reading the text in the page. You know, that doesn't, there's no melody there. So the TV show, when it made these things into real songs, those did take over for me. Those became the version because there wasn't a prior version for me. Is that, how, how does that concept, how does that play for you guys? Um. For me, I think it, the soundtracks more than the songs. Definitely the soundtracks, like, you know, like the Targaryen and Stark soundtracks, they do kind of resonate with me. I think that will stay there. I mean, that Ramin Djawadi's work, which is, by the way, it's not me. There's a theory out there. We're the same people, but <laughs> I'm not that person. But, uh, um, I was going to say, how, how did you enjoy composing for Westworld? It paid, paid pretty well. Another good but, uh, bit no. of composing. <laughs> uh, but the songs, I mean, I, I, I had heard other versions of songs on YouTube and stuff before. Even Reigns of Castamere, so that didn't quite get there with me. I, I did enjoy the show versions, but uh, it didn't stick with me as much. I see. Okay. I'll be interested to know if, uh, when reading The Winds of Winter, if I, you know, Daenerys is being powerful and I hear that Targaryen theme. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, you know the. You should play it. You should yeah. play it in the background. That's the only thing the book is missing is is like music. We should have books. Ebooks should have music yeah. that plays in the background at key moments. <laughs> there, there oh, are a great a, idea. there are a few out there that have that. Oh yeah, a few. That's a neat it's idea. It definitely should be more popular than it is, but hard to get all that together. There's definitely a few podcasters that have kind of have constant music going. You know, oh, maybe yeah. just maybe just a mild minor thing going on in the background. Uh -huh. The next version of Game of Thrones, the, we had the 20th version, like illustrated version. It's going to be the audio music version. The music <laughs> <background. laughs> yeah. Yes. That's what they need for the 25th anniversary. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So, yeah, that'll be interesting, too. There'll, and there'll probably be more songs. We might, you know, in season seven and eight, there'll be more songs, certainly. More soundtracks, for sure. And those will, you know, fit in there in their own way. 
I wonder if they'll adapt any more of the songs that George created. Um, mm. I don't know that there's any that he's written lyrics for that haven't been done yet. That's something that I'm just now thinking of. It would have been neat yeah, to research like that. Yeah, Jenny's song would be a good one, but he... We he hardly have written, any yeah. of the lyrics Maybe he's that. written yeah. more than yeah. we think. Maybe he has. Yeah, maybe it's he has. Possible. Yeah, if he did, that'd be nice if he shared those things. Well, so. I want the, the rest of the seasons <laughs> yeah. of my love. I want to get that full song there. Because I think what we're missing is spring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's winter, there's autumn, there's summer. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are some yeah. common themes that we see in the music types of songs that are written? Certainly love is one, although it's usually tragic love. There's not Bodiness. a lot of... What's that? Bodiness. <laughs> Bodiness. Yeah. Yeah, sexual themes are popular and it sells well. I mean, the, the Baron Maiden Fair was, was from even Edge Night times and earlier it was popular. So, yeah. Which is tied to love. Good point, yeah. That one's really lingered. And then a lot of tragic songs Warning. just that yeah. don't have anything to do with love. A lot of war songs, of course. That's unsurprising. Mm. And, you know, As we not mentioned, just religious. Religious, yeah, that's a big one. Although there aren't old God songs that I can think of. Can you think of any songs that re re reference the old God? Certainly old, wildling culture, northern culture, yeah, you know, the last culture, of the giants, things like that. But I can't think of any... Yeah. Last of the Giants, I think, fits it yeah. the, the most, maybe, because it's like, even uh, John's like, well, there's still, like, giants around, and, and the guy's like, you're such a fool. So, I mean, one of the meanings might be, you know, with the ones that died yeah. south of the wall. They're the last ones south of the wall that got yeah. cut off. And thinking back to the really, really old songs we talked about, we touched on that briefly about the concept of songs that have come to all the way from the long night. We can go back even farther. I mean, the children of the forest are called the singers, right? They sing the songs of the earth, that kind of thing. It's supposed to be, I believe that's supposed to make us think of Native Americans culture in, in mm -hmm. you know, that's a big time. Yeah, kind of, those are yeah. some themes that we associate. So there's a, this is a, there's a couple of, a lot of different songs here that can lead us into different subjects. Uh, there's a couple of newer songs, and this is one, this is a concept I like thinking about. Some of the newest songs that were written, as in they were written during A Song of Ice and Fire, as, as opposed to songs that were written before the series that the characters remember from history, or songs that are traditional. Of course, she's most famous with Tyrion. Right. Maybe the most famous. I guess Ty, I guess Tywin and the Reigns of Castamere counts for that, too. That's, that's pretty, not the series. Yeah. That's not during the series. Yeah. Now, so, so a good example is... Um, Lord Renly's Lord Ren Well, I was going to say the uh, the wolf wolf in the night, but Lord Renly's ride is a great example too. Lord Renly's ride is the song composed is a pro Renly and pro Joffrey song, yeah. which is to show which was kind of a propaganda song showing that the Lannisters and even though Renly was a traitor, yeah. <laughs> the, since the Tyrells and the Lannisters are or the Bar Baratheons slash Lannisters are merging into one family. You gotta, they gotta explain how Renly's trees and they gotta kind of, you know, make all that fit. So the song speaks of Renly lamenting his treason and repenting his treason and, and, you know, coming to, to help out, uh, the Lannister Baratheon Tyrells and, and, and repenting for his bad deeds. So it's, <laughs> uh, that's a good example of a propaganda song. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if that song isn't one that, is still sung a hundred years from now. <laughs> I'm guessing that one's going to be forgotten, but you never know. <laughs> um, so the the wolf in the night. Uh, talk to us about that one. That's one that you specifically wrote about. I mean, sure. It's about it's about Rob and uh, 
I mean, even though Rob ended up losing in the end, his he still kind of has that young wolf legacy. He never defeated in battle himself, and you know was fighting against great odds. So that's something that could become yeah. popular later on. It's uh, yeah, it's another one. I wonder that one. You you talk about specifically. This is a, a good example of what we're talking about. You even bring up whether you think that song will be remembered later, since the Kingdom in the North is kind of dead right now it may you know revive itself who knows what's in the, you know coming in the last two or three books but it's certainly not a dead idea but right now it's kind of dead and you wonder if northern loyalists will continue to sing that song and whether you know if 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 the bolton situation were to stay you know if the boltons were to keep control for a while which i don't think they will but if they were do you wonder if, if is ruth bolton the kind of guy that would ban that song it would kill people for having it sung or tear tongues out i would think so mm-hmm. yeah i think so as well but i mean how much longer are they going to be in there right yeah and they don't have, they have bigger problems than songs right now. Yeah. <laughs> Such as Stannis. If you had, if you had the five-year gap, then maybe that would have been it. It's like they have all these flashbacks, and Ruse was trying to ban this song. Yeah. It was like one of the, <laughs> we don't have any bulk songs. There are, yeah, there's no, the, the, the yeah. skin that was flayed. Yeah. Yeah. Flayed in the night. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I think, well, the end of Bale, I don't know if the Bale the Bar, Bar song goes, I mean, the tale goes kind of into that, right? That's true, Bale like, is, uh, is flayed. Yeah. Yeah, isn't he? Or no, I mean, his um, or his, the son that kills him is the one who's uh, ultimately. Flipped, oh yeah, that's right? right. That's right. The son yeah, because he because yeah. of Kinsling killed his own. Bale's child, him. right? Not Bale himself. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's in the song or if that's just part of the tale. He right knows about it, mentions it, and then John's like, "Well, this is bullshit." But it's actually that that actually supports the whole story that there's some lord skinning him that fits the Boltons doing that in the past. Yeah. Yeah, you wonder, I think you even maybe mentioned this, you wonder if that uh, that particular piece of skin is still hanging in the uh, yeah. in the Dreadfort somewhere. Probably. <laughs> uh, and one of the reasons I brought that concept up about banning songs is it speaks to both what we're, a lot of things we've been talking about throughout this, this episode, the fact that songs are so memorable, and that's why, and the way they, mm. they stick in your head. And that's a, an important reason why someone would want to prevent them spreading in the first place. If you're you know, a Machiavellian politician and you're trying to control certain things, that's a really obvious thing to keep a hand on. And hey, our favorite Machiavellian character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Blood Raven, specifically outlawed singing songs about Damon Blackfire. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and then there was later a song about Blood Raven. Yeah, <laughs> Thousand Eyes and One. Yeah. yeah, and I'm wondering if that song was... Pro Blood Raven or not, it was probably a little of both. It's, yeah, it sounds because Thousand Eyes and One is yeah. speaks to how powerful, powerful, and how his 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 competent he was. Yeah, his 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 network of secrets ran so deep. The singers uh, often often are the ones who are face the punishment right like right now, or they're just useful scapegoats, not just for the singing, but in general, like with Whitesfall, Matt, uh, Watt. No, no, not not Whitesfall, uh, Mer- Merillion. I mean, like yeah. he's used there, the and blue then bard. blue bard has been like tortured till he's like a. Oh <laughs> god, uh, yeah. yeah the, you're right. This that's a great topic. It's 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 the darkness of a song of ice and fire, in a in a small category that people probably haven't noticed. I certainly didn't notice it, but when you put it in your essay, I was like, wow, yeah, this is so true. <laughs> There's just look at the list of singers, yeah, and look at the fates that they've had. Persecution of artists. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's bad. They're going to be controversial. Marillion kind of deserved it. Yeah, I, I yeah. Won't he lie. did. That guy earned his a punishment. Yeah. Something. He maybe was, not that exact punishment. Maybe not but. so extreme, yeah. but he does. He earned uh, his this 
he earned some form of punishment. But he certainly went too far. Yeah. And then there's, like you said, the blue bard was tortured simply for being too close to the wrong people. He wrong place at wrong yeah. time. But I mean, it fit, it fit the stereotype of singers being lovers for for like highborn ladies. I mean, we have that with yeah. Lady Smallwood. We had that with potentially Jenna Lannister, which I which I think that her fourth son, uh, like the Red mm-hmm. Lannister, might not be, like, might be a bastard. Okay. And another one there. that you, oh yeah, that's a neat idea. Yeah, Red Walder. And the one that. Yeah, <laughs> and the one that you mentioned very specifically is da- is Darian mm. from the Night's Watch, who was a is a very talented singer, and of course that's why John yeah. chose him <laughs> to be a recruiter because mm. Song, someone who has a great voice, that's of course other aspects of Darian's personality made him a poor choice. Yeah, yeah. he kind of lived up to all the stereotypes. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Arya took care of that, didn't <sighs> she? <Yes. laughs> yep. Ended his song. And another one who kind of earned his fate was Simon Silvertongue, the one who mm. basically threatened Tyrion to his face. Like, come on, dude. That's yeah. just really dumb. And that was the ultimate, well, not not him specifically, but just the Tyrion's line, line if I'm ever hand again, the thing I'll do is hang all the singers. One of the main inspirations that got me on this path to do this essay. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you talked about Tyrion, and there's a great quote I picked out of your essay here it is. Tyrion Lannister has a special relationship with two particular songs. His recollection of Seasons of My Love is bittersweet, reflecting his past relationship with Tysha. It's a song that he remembers often and cannot forget. And then, of course, he has all these other songs that he has a, you know, a, this isn't exactly a good relationship he has with this song with Tysha. He says it's bittersweet. I'm sure it's, you know, he has some happy memories of Taisha, but mostly these days when he thinks of Taisha, he feels ashamed and embarrassed and sad. So it's not probably very bittersweet anymore. At the time that, you know, at some point it was bittersweet for him, but nowadays it's probably mostly negative. Because yeah, <laughs> he's in a bad space right now, although it's things are looking up for him, but not yet, maybe. So I think that's really important, just the, the way that some of these songs impact these really important characters of ours and how gets a rise out of them or it changes their emotional state really quickly. And that's something that songs can do in the real world. I I like that George has carried over how much music can really touch the brain and in ways that Mm. modern Mm. science does not understand. (laughs) And uh, I just think it's really cool. um, These unknowns. Mm. George manages to carry that over without trying to explain what those unknowns really are. So here's an interesting uh, subtopic as well. We talked about how singers have had such terrible fates all over, but they're really, really welcome everywhere, aren't they? They're they're really popular at the same time. It's kind of like yeah. th- because they provide that this, people like songs, and two, you kind of like show off if you have singers coming to your court, right? It's part of the at- atmosphere of your court. Yeah, it makes you makes you a bigger, uh, more important lord to have that particular aspect. You know, you got your maester, you got your septons, you got your gaggle of different. You know, petitioners and <laughs> geese, gaggle of geese, uh, brace of asses, <laughs> etc. So it's fun. so that's kind of an interesting dichotomy. They're they're very well. Everybody wants to have singers around. Sansa, in particular, thinks about how much she loves the songs, but they always they quite often have awful yeah. things happen to them. Yeah, I'd also want a singer around if I had the type yeah. of entertainment they have, <laughs> which is yeah. Almost nothing, which speaks to the earlier point about how memorable songs are. Like we songs, there's a lot of songs that are memorable, 
But in the modern world, there's so many of them. One earworm can mm. be taken over by another. You hear a really mm. catchy song, but then you hear another one more recently, and that one takes over. But these are people that do, they, they probably go months at a time without hearing a song. So, and there's just fewer songs out there. It's not like you pop in your, you know, your smartphone and just, you know, mm -hmm. hit shuffle. Mm -hmm. You may hear Bear and the Maiden Fair around a campfire, and that's the only song you're going to hear for a while. And that might really stick with you. So these songs might even stick even more in the heads of the average Westerosi because it's all they're exposed to. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of neat. The hymns like a, you know, regular churchgoer is going to be constantly singing the song of the seven <laughs> or the, you know, mother maiden, mother maiden and crone, things like that. Maiden mother. Yes. They, they'll, well, they sing their own version. <laughs> uh, so there's um, a ton of songs that don't have names that we just hear that there is a song about this topic, but there is no name given. And I think one of those examples is one of the songs that's a good way for us to start transitioning to our Hall topic, which is that there's that infamous battle above the God's Eye Lake between Aemond Targaryen riding Vagar, fighting Daemon Targaryen on Caraxes the Bloodworm. And that's a famous battle, of course. That's something that just the event itself is really neat. And, you know, two guys dying, fighting each other, falling into the lake. That's just a great story. So it's not a surprise that someone wrote a song about that. Uh, that's the kind of thing that probably people would remember without the song. But the song makes certain that people will remember. And it makes certain that people talk about it. And it makes certain that it attaches more significance to it. But also, songs have a way of exaggerating, right? There's There's a lot of things that people like to embellish. Now that's true of oral history as well, I think. And it's certainly true of rumors. We talk about that a lot, the game of telephone, where someone starts telling a story and they want to sound, they want to make it sound a little sexier than the last person <laughs> that told it. And just like here, there's no, you know, song bank where that has all the original lyrics stored somewhere. So people probably change things here and there. And some of these changes may stick. Uh, and maybe songs kind of permanently change, so to speak. And I wonder, you know, you, you got, it gives you, it's a whole probably rabbit hole that we're not going to go into, but it's something to think about how prior versions of these songs might have been. Or one example from your essay is something you point out that might be a mistake, a continuity error, is the song called A Dance of the Dragons, where Tyrion thinks it's a better, it should, you know, it's better sung by a man and a woman. And you propose that it sounds like it would be Rhaenyra and Aegon the second, which makes sense. Those are the two claimants in the Dance of the Dragons. But then Tyrion says it, it's 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 a haunting ballad of two dying lovers at the, during the Doom. <laughs> so that's odd, right? Why is it called the Dance of the Dragons if it's during the Doom? So that's that's a little odd, and that maybe except that maybe it inspired the name of the Dance of the Dragons. Absolutely, long-known song. Yeah, or yeah, exactly, or. Maybe this could be an example of the song. The, the song evolved over time, but the name stayed the same. You know, mm -hmm. something like that. I don't know. It's, it's that's me sort of trying to repair what might be a continuity error with an explanation that fits, hmm. which is how I think you're, how we should do these things. That's yeah, so, I mean, it's how, how, it's boring when you say it's just an error. Like, well, that, well what yeah. does that? I mean, it's, it's, it's more fun to try to patchwork away that I'll base off the world history. Yeah, that fits it. So. <laughs> We get to exercise our creativity that way. <laughs> One thing that's kind of a meta topic here, the idea of there being lots of songs that are about important events. 
What about important events that don't seem to have a song attributed to them? Maybe there's a song out there and we just haven't seen it yet. But what are some ideas for important events either in the far history or recent history that either could have a song or maybe should have a song? Yeah, I'll go with my pick first, which is uh, Nymeria's Crossing. Mm. Uh, it's possible that it does have a song. We have a song called The Burning of the Ships that's sung in the north, um, but there's specifically... Brandon the Burner, so it's possible that he, that song is about him, but it also makes sense with Nymeria's story. It's a song that could have been adapted, just like we were talking about, about maybe oh, yeah. someone borrowed a song and kind of repurposed the lyrics yeah, for true. something that's more appropriate for their for their culture. That could be a perfect example of that. And if you're going back far enough, you know, we, we talked about there's maybe songs that date back to the long night, so why not some other major historical events like, like the Doom, for example. <laughs> that's a good example. Going back even farther... Uh -huh. I think you mentioned the breaking of the armor door when we were, yeah. when we were talking um, brainstorming. I, it ideas makes me for think a lot about um, one of the best show only things there is, which is that uh, Doom of Beleria poem. Oh, yeah. Very good. Very good. Good point. Yeah, that's that's uh, very relevant. How about the like, coming of the Andals? I'm trying to see if there's any songs that kind of shows oh, their invasion. Oh, yeah. That's a cool idea. They would want to have songs yeah, about their triumph. They would. Yeah, about their coming over. Uh, I can't think of one, though. That's a really cool thought. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there is, but of course, it could be out there. Yeah. I wonder what other songs Rhaegar had. I'm sure he had yeah. like a big old playbook. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's got <laughs> some, some good Targaryen, uh, Valyrian. Yeah, I wonder if there's some Valyrian songs in Valyrian lyrics. Yeah. Well, we, we do see some songs sung in, in High Valyrian during uh, Storm of Swords during the oh. Red Wedding. Tyrion thinks it's silly that they're singing in a language that pretty much <laughs> no one there understands. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, which is funny. It's also a way for him to not have to write the lyrics into there, you know? He's just like, oh, oh yeah. well, no one knows what they're saying, so... That's <laughs> It's just background noise. It's funny. <laughs> okay, so what about favorites? What are you guys' favorite songs from the show slash books? Either one, I mean, it can... it can The two can... It can be a specific rendition. It can yeah. be just the lyrics. It could be one without lyrics if that's just the one that you like the concept of. Yeah. Hmm. Um... From straight from the show, I like this the song of the seven, even though it's just oh, yeah. so simple. I think it's neat, uh -huh. um, and I really like uh, the last of the giants. Um, yeah. The composition for that. There's been a lot of covers of or made up versions of that, and it's That's a great favorite. song. It's very sad. The it's last a, of the giants. Yeah, definitely. it's really good. That's a great song, and and it's and it's and it shows. And in, in the book, we even see Igrit is. You know, it brings her to tears. It's uh, it shows how important it is uh, to the wildling culture. It really reflects a lot of things because they're a dying people in in a lot of in a lot of ways. And the giants died out before them. Of course, the giants aren't all dead, but they're effectively died out. And you go into some interesting theories as to what they mean by "lash the giants" in your essay. So that's another yet another reason to uh, read this. But yeah, there's. Uh, it's. I think it reflects what's happening to the wildlings too. They're yeah. they're kind of their people is maybe going extinct, especially with the long night coming again. They're you know, going to bear the brunt of that. You know, I think it's a very sad song, but no matter what, when I read it, I do not hear it as a sad song. Which one? The last. Oh, really? Giants. Oh, okay. Like I want to, and I've even listened to versions of it. But I hear it as like a flogging Molly type, <laughs> uh, like drinking song, which is not at all what it is. But I, I, you could sing it that way, which is funny. What I mean was talking about earlier, which is 
how there was versions of the reigns of Castamere that were jolly and jovial uh, before <laughs> the show came yeah. out, which is just interesting. Different scenarios where a song might be sung that they might do a different composition. I've heard mostly, I've heard, a, we've, we listened to a good female singer version of it before, right before recording this. And, but I kind of imagine like a real deep bass voice doing it because it's giants, you mm. know. I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas a song like... Well, any of the other songs, really, I don't really attach a, a male or female designation to, is what I imagine. They just, they could work either way. Um, although, yeah. you do bring up the fact that, that female singers are, are rare, yeah. right? That's that's something I didn't really notice, which is, I might think that's kind of odd, because mm -hmm. in, in that culture, that's not really a cultural thing, necessarily, in the real world. Uh, there's... I mean, I mean, it kind of there is. is. Depending uh, there on the is culture, been, there's been more male singers yeah. historically. I think in Western culture, for sure. Oh yeah, and in, in so yeah, like actors, so for too. example, it was pretty much mostly men. So they, which is kind of like the same yeah. kind of area of arts and, and stuff. That's a very good point. There were all the female roles were played by men back in like ancient Greece. That's very true. Yeah, <laughs> With their masks like and their. That. Yeah. <laughs> silly. That's very silly. Of course, there's examples <laughs> of you know aristocratic ladies having to learn instruments and and learn the fine yeah. arts, but mm. not necessarily being the performers going around actually making money at it. That's a good point. Yeah, I guess maybe yeah. I had that kind of uh, <laughs> off in my head there. Yeah, it's a good point. So yeah, and that's that's neat that you even point out at one point. I mean, you point out that someone's referred to as a woman singer as if it's something rare which apparently it is because right like all these examples of singers i are... didn't realize until reading the essay that that was the only female singer that i could think of yeah i guess there isn't another one no. is there i can't think of a mm. single other one no. other than you know sansa singing to yeah. the hound for example. <laughs> she's not a singer but she does have a good voice yeah. <laughs> well i have the perfect transition quote from going from songs into heron hall from songs to curses as it were from our good friend, Lord Peter Baelish. Has someone made a song about Gregor Clegane dying of a poisoned spear thrust? Or about the sellsword before him, whose limbs Sir Gregor removed a joint at a time? That one took the castle from Sir Emery Lorch, who received it from Lord Tywin. A bear killed one, your dwarf the other. Lady Wentz died as well, I hear. Lofton's, Strong's, Haraway's, Towers, Harrenhal has withered every hand to touch it. Well, that's a good point. Has someone made a song about Gregor Clegane dying of a poison spear thrust? No, but someone might make a song about Sir Robert Strong, <laughs> the oh, yeah. undead giant that we call the Kyborg, yeah. uh, walking around doing his thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that that might be a song. Uh, that would be another metal song, I think, <laughs> songs about <laughs> Robert Strong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also an interesting crossover point here, which is that Sir Robert Strong, Kyber named him Sir Robert Strong. Strong was one of the houses that held Harrenhal. And as we know, Kyburn started his rise to power at Harrenhal because he was a member of the Bloody Mummers, the Brave Companions, and attached himself to Jamie by being good with stumps and then rose in Cersei's esteem by being a creepy dude that helps her do her creepy things. So... That's a good example of uh, something that isn't doesn't have a song. And Harrenhal itself is something that I don't think there's songs about Harrenhal specifically, but there could be songs of Aegon melting the towers or of the yeah, burning Heron. ghosts of Black Heron. Yeah there, yeah, there might be one about that very well that we just haven't seen. Yeah, just George didn't bother to write about it. Um, it hasn't come up, but it'd be... I don't, I'd have to guess that such a thing does exist in some form or another. Hmm. 
So that's <laughs> every pretty... singer who sung it has been cursed. They <laughs> <laughs> avoid that topic. Yeah. <laughs> so our essay deals with the curse of Heron Hall and the history of Heron Hall because we get at to get at the curse, we have to explain the history. And of course, that was one of the things that drew us to this topic. We got to talk about the history of Heron Hall, which is fun. We love to talk about history, obviously. And there's a lot of Heron Hall's history is interesting because it's short, relatively speaking, to the mm-hmm. thousands of years that some of these other castles have existed. And in between those thousands of years these other castles have existed, not a whole lot of other major castles have popped up. Uh, the Erie is relatively new, and it's not new. King's Landing is new. Red Keep is new. The Red Keep is a, pretty small as castles go. And King's Landing is a city. It's not a castle at all. Uh, something like Butterwell's seat that he was building in the Duncan Egg novels. That was torn down by Bloodraven. That would have been a newer castle. So Harrenhal not only is huge and, in, you know, the biggest castle in Westeros by most standards, it's really new. And that sets it apart. And its history begins under the shadow right away. The minute the last stone is is set bad things start to happen and that's a major topic for us is getting into whether the curse is a real thing or whether it's just something people believe in and whether that even matters because if people believe in something is real it still has an effect as if it's real so um just initial impressions uh i've that's a good intro spiel there for talking about it. I'm in. Um, what what did you think? Uh, give us some of your thoughts on uh, what you got out of the essay that that made things that maybe sure. we missed. Well, not really missed, but I mean, what I got out of your essay that I didn't see myself. The one point, especially you were talking about Harrenhal and the link to the Iron Throne. That many of the swords may have come from Harrenhal, and like the first fall in Harrenhal. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't heard of that. Is, it, is that somewhere in the material? The world, yeah, the world of ice and fire uh, specifies that it was Harrenhal that he started to ship all the swords over. He shipped swords apparently from the field of fire as well. But yeah, that was a major. That was the first. He's like, what am I going to do with all these yeah. swords? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're probably already melted. Like, you know? I got I better do some art project. <laughs> well, I think I agree with your your ultimate point. Is kind of like Harrenhal itself is the curse. The location is the curse. The cost of running it. And that kind of thing. But if there is a magical element to it, then it would be the fact that dragon's fire was used there because dragons are magical. Just the same way that the Iron Throne, if there's something magical, it's because it was forged with dragon fire. So this is, oh, yeah. that's where I would say it might be the magical source of it, would have to be because Valerian was there burning stuff there. Yeah, you know, it makes me think a lot about, uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, Strange Stone, what with our Great Empire of the Dawn talk and how they might create it and things like that and uh, how cursed some of it has been yeah. uh, like Yeen um, in particular and Ashai and it just makes me think of Hall. those are undeniable uh, curses yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely undeniable everyone died okay that's yeah. real right yeah you can't explain that one away. well you, you also go over uh, <laughs> potential fertility problems is one of the issues that comes up with people there, but I mean, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to be a male issue. Like the strongest still are still able to have bastards, but a lot of the women yeah. aren't able. So is there something about that dragon rock that makes women barren <laughs> or something like yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Certainly that theory's come up before with the, with Rayella and Summerhall. I said, what happened with Rayella? 
Raelle survived Summerhall, and then she had, you know, even for Westerosi standards, had major problems with miscarriages and stillborns. Because obviously miscarriages and stillborns are sadly extremely, extremely yeah. common. But she had, even for that, even with that in mind, she had a ton of them. And it's caused people, because it's so outstanding, and it has has to do with part of Ares' insanity, probably ties to that at least a little bit, if not a lot, um, the, the strain and the stress of, of the, the swings of joy of having a newborn and having it die right away is just so many times is just no one can really know what that's like. It's I'm sure there's some of our listeners that have dealt with the miscarriage or stillbirth. Course. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. I sort of doubt that. there's a bunch who have dealt with 12. Yeah, or... I don't think anyone here is anyone listening has dealt with 12. Maybe not maybe in a professional capacity, but not in a personal capacity, I'm guessing. The point is it's horrible. And and the other point is that it might have some sort of magical underpinning to it. Dragonfire, fake dragonfire. What does these what do these things do? Do they have a radiation effect? Like a, <laughs> some sort of uh, messing with your DNA permanently kind of thing? That's yeah, how well, real, the real science works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, they are often likened to nuclear weapons. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, it's not. I mean, if you look at it from it scientifically, even though it melts stone, it's not hot enough really to 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 make something like a radioactive or something like that. But Magically is a whole different story. Magic is different from science. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we see with Hall too, is the idea of these, like you said, these different families that have held it. And the, the fertility thing is interesting. There's some of it's exaggerated. Some of the families didn't have any trouble with fertility, but some of them had huge problems with it. And you'd, like you say, it's true that it does seem to have more to do with the women than the men. Uh, which may be coincidence, but it, there might be a reason for that. Certainly, Heron himself had no had had plenty of sons, but the, he had them before Heron Hall was built, so that's not a really a, a fair comparison. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right to point to one of our. I guess it's a conclusion, uh, a sort of a conclusion that Heron Hall, the nature of it is the way it was set up. Of course, it's going to be a a problem. Of course, it's going to have a bad history it's not necessarily going to have the kind of history of curse those things weren't set in stone ha pun intended <laughs> but the fact that it's right in the middle of the continent right in the center of the riverlands which is the most war-torn of all the regions because it's right in the center and it doesn't have a lot of natural features around it to to isolate it from armies there's no mountains nearby there's the lake the god's eye is something certainly <laughs> But the God's Eye also takes us to the creepy mystical side of things here, which is where Harrenhal is also an interesting centerpiece. We talked about the possible influence of dragons here, but there's also that really, really creepy, angry-faced werewood that has permanent wounds from a Valyrian steel blade and that bleed every spring. And it has, and we, we theorize that the face is so twisted and angry because of all the things it's seen there at Heron Hall. And I, in one of the things it saw it was the... happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things it saw during the construction was Her was other werewoods getting yeah. torn down to be built into it. Uh, there's there's were werewoods were... Which is odd that they didn't touch this heart tree. I guess even Heron had a little bit of superstition in yeah. that he didn't cut this tree down. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe he should have cut that tree down. <laughs> Yeah, that was the big problem. There's also <laughs> the Isle of Faces, I think, is nearby, isn't it? Like, maybe it's, it's, yeah, it's like that. That area is an interesting area. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's like a magical. It's the center of all these different magical elements coming together. You got different. You got the old gods. You got the the, the green men. The green men. You green got man. Green man. Yeah, you got. <laughs> you got. Then you got this magic of Kyber, and you got the the the, the strong thing going on. Like that might be tied to all this somehow. Mm-hmm. One theory was that he learned how he a missing piece of of his you know recipe for creating. Kyborgs was something he found in the library there at, at Harrenhal, mm. you know, and we tie that to Mad Donnell Lofton, who is supposedly a sorceress, and because she, you know, lived a long life or whatever. We, that's a big subtopic we go yeah. into in this essay. Is well, she bathed in blood, and then I think you mentioned that maybe there was she just had red hair dye or yeah. something, which was yeah. a kind of interesting. That's a that's an interesting interpretation. People wouldn't, the average like lower class person there wouldn't understand what that is. They'd be like, oh, it's yeah. Blood and, like, Cancer. The only other <laughs> red liquid they're familiar with is wine, yeah. and they wouldn't guess that it's wine. It's like, what is she putting her hair in wine? Yeah, they would. Yeah, blood. Yeah, etc. And the the black bat of Harrenhal is this is a sigil that people associate with it, even though the bat hasn't been, you know, in charge for a while. Yeah. It does. The the Wents are in charge of this of Harrenhal when the story begins, but they're gone really quickly, and they were already die basically dying out. And that was the thing we talk about, the, the fertility of the Went women as compared to the Freys. Because two Went women marry Freys. And, oh, yeah. and the Freys are supposed to be all fertile. And the Wents are, you know, the cursed house because mm-hmm. they're in Hall. And, of course, the Harrenhal wins. They're, the Frey Went marriages produce very little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite things that we got to talk about was uh, some kind of meta-textual stuff uh, inspired by Bran Vross. We got yes. to talk about some of the symbolism in uh, these bat as bat and wolf imagery. Okay, so we have this really awesome quote that's pretty sneaky. Don't forget that the Starks, the Stark children, not the elder Starks, are all have went blood. They all have the bu- the blood of the bat in them. <laughs> The blood of the bat. <laughs> and we love to have pointed out several times in several different episodes that Ned Stark battles Oswell Went at King at the uh, Tower of Joy. And Oswell would be an uncle or some sort of cousin, depending on his relationship with Manissa. I assume Manissa and Oswell were, were brother and sister, but that's not, certainly not certain. Certainly not certain. Mm-hmm. And so, but they're kin in one way or another. So that was like a bit of kinslaying ish thing in, in unintentional, which is, uh, we call that the curse of entangling marriages, which isn't really, I don't know if that's a reflection on Harrenhal, but it's certainly tragic and sad. But anyway, Shea has got this awesome quote here. Yeah. The Northern girl, Winterfell's daughter, we heard she killed the king with a spell and afterward changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind and Cersei means to have his head. That's stupid, Arya thought. Sansa only knows songs, not spells, and she'd never marry the imp. Yeah, so that's great, right? The big leather wings like a bat. That's exactly her... That's speaking to her heritage. A wolf with that. We only have to explain the wolf part. And the bat, big leather wings. That's her grandmother. So... Uh, there wasn't any way to get a fish into there. No tolly <laughs> fish thing. Into there, dove into the water. Yeah, wolf <laughs> with big leather wings dove into the water. <laughs> Flopped around. All the so that's really cool. Then there's a lot of that hidden imagery with heritage with Sansa because Elaine Stone, her you know false name, also speaks to the stone head of House House Baelish, which is easy to forget because. 
Peter loves to use his Mockingbird sigil, but his family's sigil is the stone head of the Titan of Bravos. So that's really cool. And of course, Brienne is hunting for Sansa and Arya while carrying around not only a Stark sword, for uh, well, a sword made from the Stark sword, but a shield that used to be a lost and shield painted over. So she's got that bat. Uh, that she's hunting for a bat <laughs> with a bat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very cool, very sneaky. George sticking that stuff in there like he always does for us to find and, and geek out over. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing we talk about a lot is what's going to happen with Heron Hall, different possibilities. Uh, certain things haven't resolved themselves. You know, maybe if the curse is, is a real thing, we might see some bad things happen to some people that haven't had a chance for the bad things to happen to them yet obviously gregor held the castle and he had a horrible ending armory yeah. lorch same thing real bad the bear got him mm -hmm. um and but we have Roos bolton who has yet to have any sort of comeuppance <laughs> but he might be killed by his own son that's a possible if and if not who knows but i don't see him living <laughs> throughout the series yeah, uh, he's definitely he's, got a bad fate coming to him. So yeah, you guys think it'll be particularly it'll be the awful? Noose. The a news for Roos? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I think. <laughs> I'm mostly joking, but and, unless, uh, unless he's a vampire, Roos, whatever. Like, the, <laughs> if, he, if he is, it fits the blood bathing. Is he bathing in the same bathtub? Are there? Do they? Have, <laughs> do they have moose? A moose for Roos? Yeah, well, mo there. well, Roos has been doing a lot of damage to the moose, the the hornwood moose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the moose will kill him. Then. The moose is going to get Roos. That's it. <laughs> That's the that would be fitting. But Baelish is the one that never actually went there, right? Uh, and is in a good situation now. I mean, he he used the title to his advantage. Uh, you kind of talk about maybe he can use the troops, but then it kind of said maybe not, which I can agree with. I mean, like just because he has a claim over it doesn't mean anyone's going to listen to him. <laughs> right, and that's a major thing we discussed be as well, is why Hall used to be considered a prize. Mm. Uh, now, Peter Baelish calls it just, you know, a, a black hole. You can't, you know, it's just impossible to, to handle. And I think that there's a reason for that, and it's, I think that it has to do with that the surrounding territory, Hall used to control more of it. But now that territory has mm. been give, given out to different lords based on past rebellions. Robert's Rebellion is a, is a key element we, we guesstimate is the reason why, based on the timing. But there's other possibilities as far as tax policies. Who knows? But past houses that had Hall didn't have this problem. At least we don't hear about them having this problem. We hear about them being really powerful. Hmm. Uh, and Baelish is, you know, if, if it would make Baelish powerful, he would surely know. But he doesn't think it would. He, he, he's got other plans. And he never, like you say, he never st sets foot in it. Another person who is given the title and never sets foot in it, does have a pretty bad ending, and that's Jano Slint. So just going just goes to show that you can have a bad <laughs> ending without as Lord of Harrenhal without setting foot in it. <laughs> I do think Peter Baelish is not going to survive the series either. Um, but I don't think he's just going to have his head chopped off like uh, like Jon Snow did to uh, good old Janos. <laughs> um, but we can hope. <laughs> we can hope indeed. Another interesting thing that happens at Harrenhal is Roos Bolton. It's when we learn that he's become a traitor to the North. And he, there's that really powerful scene of him going hunting wolves in the night. <laughs> and comes back with nine dead wolves, uh, seven of them adults, two of them children. And the two children, this is a right around the time when the world hears of Bran and Rickon dying, which of course they're not dead. 
um, which we touched on in your essay. But that is, I think, a really cool little parallel, George, fitting a whole lot into one quote. We, we, we hear the not only nine is an interesting number that he choo chooses also because there's nine bats on the it's Went very sigil. number. I mean, there's and there's nine on Rob's uh, crown. Yeah, nine wolves on the crown. Nine on wolves the on the crown. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a new song. Nine wolves on the crown. <laughs> I really like the Lostons as they're really cool. And I, even though I go out of my way to debunk some of the supernatural stuff about them, I think that's a neat idea. And I think the idea of a, a female ruler or a, a powerful woman is really interesting. And it relates to characters like Melisandre and Shiera Seastar, all of whom who, who have bathed in blood are, we're told they bathe in blood rather. Yeah. We don't know for sure. We don't have any pic pictures on Shiera Seastar's Instagram is, 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 is secret. You know, you have to get permission and she yeah, has not private. accepted our request. Well, you have that, you, you specifically say like this for your, from your essay, we cannot under, underestimate how quickly the fairly mundane turns to rumors of black magic when a woman is involved, and, and <laughs> particularly in a woman from Essos. I mean, that could have been an essay, essay in this book, women from Essos and how they're seen as the other oh, yeah, like, yeah. magical yeah. temptresses. That's interesting. And that's a real world thing too. Like in Roman yeah. history, the, yeah. the, 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 his, the, the common trope of the evil stepmother is <laughs> like super common in Rome, Roman history about like they would always blame the stepmother for... It's super common the, mm. that bad things that a man does is blamed on his wife. Like uh, the, the lace serpent, the Mirish woman that was the married to the Lord of Duskendale, the guy who mm. mm -hmm. captured Ares and his insane rebellion. And his his wife had a worse end than he did. Yeah, just the lady, like in the Reigns and the Tarbrecks, like was Lady Tarbrek or Lady... Yeah, Ellen Rain, yeah. Ellen Rain, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Rain, I guess, yeah. Like they... That, that type of character repeats over and over again. And in terms of history, you kind of compare Harrenhal to a couple of the castles from history. And what it kind of reminded me, too, was uh, when the Great Wall was first built, too. I think, like, the dynasty that put that up kind of collapsed right when it finally came up. It was, like, exerted so much effort in oh. making the Great Wall, I think. I never caught that. At that point. I mean, and, and that was Harren's uh, whole point is to make this be a ruling area. It needs to have a certain amount of territory supporting it. If it's just, like the local area is not going to be enough. And that's part of why he put it in the center. I think that was part yeah. of his idea. He was, uh, he was, he probably had visions of conquering the entire, all of Westeros um, hmm. and mm. making that the, the seat of Westeros. And it's possible that if Aegon the Conqueror hadn't melted it to hell, he would have made it his, his capital. They, I mean, the Ironborn were pretty powerful at that point. You look at like how much yeah. territory they had, it was pretty impressive. It's like, how did they, <laughs> I guess they're the most powerful when the realm was all like broken apart. Then they can yeah. use their skills to their max advantage. Yeah, and and it's pointed out in the World Wide <laughs> Fire that Heron wasn't really like past Ironborn. He hardly set foot on the Iron Islands his entire career. He, mm. he leveraged them for their met for their fighters and their ships. He, you know, he used they were a vital supply to his armies. But he clearly had a was of a mind to move the center of his power to somewhere. Well, somewhere more central and more powerful. You know, the Iron Islands are poor. And, you know, they're, they're great for producing warriors, uh, which he was keen to make use of. But that was a short-term thing. And we see Euron real making that same realization. The Ironborn are a stepstone to greater things if you're an ambitious man. They're the first part of the journey. They're not the one to dance with at the end. <laughs> so 
I think that's a really neat concept. And this is this is sort of some of the things that we were able to get into by well, talking about Hall. There's a lot of subtopics with it. It's really interesting. In, we One of the things we point out, I think, is how it's the castle that we see the most other than perhaps Winterfell. Because so many POVs take pl happen there. There's Ari has a long arc there. And then we have, you know, the war goes through there several times. We have, you know, it's a big part of the War of Five Kings. Tywin, Tywin's decision whether to go, where to go from there is huge. And it impacts what Stannis does, everything. So, yeah, strategically, historically, uh, all these things matter. But, yeah, we mostly focus on the curse. And I think that's neat. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of fun writing this. I think if we were to pick a castle to live in, if you were to, you know, a lot of people think like, which character would you be or which house would you belong to? But which castle would you live in is a, is a you know, maybe doesn't get off, doesn't get asked quite as often. I don't think any of us would pick Harrenhal, right? <laughs> well, like, I, I think I don't think no. I'm going out on a limb with that one. What, which one would you pick? I, I think I might pick the Eyrie. I don't know. Really? Mm. Casterly Rock really is protect, awfully yeah. cool. That's the most I would pick secure. Casterly Rock. Yeah, that's, I would say Casterly Rock as well. I mean, like you you said it like Ironhell was built to withstand sieges. He had fallen so many times. <laughs> Casterly Rock has never fallen. No, it yeah. has not. By, by by siege or assault, anyways. I think they <laughs> got tricked out of it or something. But that's not the same thing. Yeah, it's, that's tricked out of something. But. Storm's End is kind of in a similar place. Yeah. In that you'd regard. get your exercise in Casterly Rock, walking up all those. <laughs> yeah, uh, but then you can also you can't yeah. be like isolated. I mean, there's all those different caverns, and you can get ships yeah. to come in for resupply. It's just, I mean, they have some yeah. amazing things listed that that they have. The in Golden there. Gallery, yeah, like stuff like the that. Hall of it's King all or whatever amazing. they have. Yeah, it's so my awesome. second choice would be the High Tower, but it's kind of not the same as a castle, traditional castle. Yeah. It's just a tower, but that that would. But be being an old town would be great. Yeah. Like that's why I wouldn't want to pick Winterfell. I mean, who wants to live in the north? <laughs> like, come on, like the cold northern <laughs> culture is not so bad. Nice, but like, I don't want that weather. Pools. Yeah, but you have the hot springs, right? Oh yeah, hot springs. That's true. Winterfell is like an oasis. Yeah, and if you like snow and stuff like that a lot, it might be chill. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. And well, the uh, Greywater Watch, if you want to hide out, <laughs> it's a moving. Yeah, castle. that's for the. Uh, that's the, the, that's for our for our uh, hippie listeners would choose the. Uh, yeah. That's the the choice of the green party. If you want to be safe. You go to Greywater Watch. Yeah, yeah no one knows where it is. You got to hide somewhere. <laughs> we haven't seen much of High Garden, but that would be pretty stunning as well. For... High Garden would be the choice for our stoner listeners. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, strikes me the type of place that wouldn't be. It's like it's not a practical defense type of place. Yeah, if army that actually got there, then they'd be in trouble. But. Yeah, I'm sure Balerion and the Black Dread would would laugh at the hedge maze as. A, as a <laughs> How many ways I could fly over it? I could burn it. You know, what <laughs> I probably could just walk right through it. You know. <laughs> so, folks, I highly recommend checking out the other essays in this book. The A Hymn for Spring again is the title. You can find it on our website at historyofwesteros.com. There on the right sidebar, there's a link to it. You can get it through Amazon. And yeah, thanks for joining us. I mean, it's been uh, a great chat we've had here. And tell us, tell everybody where to find you. And tell us sure. what you guys, what your upcoming plans are with your show, as well as mention, uh, tell people that where to find this essay as well. Because yours is uh, available separately, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's on Tower of the Hand. and You guys can put up a link, I guess, with the podcast when it goes out. Definitely. It's the sample essay for the, the work, so it, it can... It's the first one in the, the in the book as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm at podcastbysonfire.com. We've been podcasting there for the last eight years. 
at Ice and Fire. I'm also involved in the Supreme Court of Westeros uh, with Stefan Sassen. I think you guys have gone there before as visiting judges. Yeah, yes, yeah we, we did. We were on number 30-something yeah, with Bloodraven. That was fun. Yeah, yes. that, was, uh, that yeah. was very fun. I, lo- I love talking about Bloodraven. We're going to eventually do a Bloodraven episode, and I'll be referring back to some of the things we said. Nice. You can cite uh, the courts. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then Twitter, uh, Javadi Amin, I'm on there as well, so you can find me there. Right on, yeah. That's great. Well, yeah, thanks again for joining us. It was fun to chat about this. It's a different format for us, just sitting around chatting about our essays, stuff that we've done in the past. And if the feedback is uh, good, the folks, we may try to recruit one of these other authors and maybe do another one of these down the line. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Thanks to Joey Townsend for the intro music and Jesse Koal for the outro music. Remember to stay tuned for my rendition of Reigns of Castamere coming up after the credits. As always, thanks to our Patreon supporters, starting with the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire and Warden of the West and contributor to A Hymn for Spring. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Our King Beyond the Wall is Rowanic Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, who recently did battle with the Ice Bat Clan, cutting off many frozen wings. Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos, Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea, and Grand Cardinal of the Temple of Yogg-Sothoth, is said to have created the Reverie of the Winged Wolf, which has entranced many and bewitched more than a few. Our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Kashan Vallant is of Swine Harbor. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods, our roots run deep. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamanter's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. And Lord Imriel of House Jordain. Also, King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady is wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. And the history of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night. Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield. First Builder Lyanna Kelly, Lady of the Steelhold. And First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. To get a great nickname like one of these or one of many other benefits, sign up at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. You can also support the show by leaving a review on iTunes, by following us on Facebook at The History of Westeros, on Twitter at Westeros History, and of course our website, www.historyofwesteros.com. Thanks everybody for listening. 
We'll be back with a regular scripted episode in the near future. So until next time, Valor Morgulis. Now the rains we pour is 